Someone gave me a picture of Lumpur Cha paying respects to Lumpur Dun today. These kind of old pictures from the life of Lumpur Cha we can use as Sankhanu Sati, recollecting the qualities of well-practiced monks, the Savaka Sangha of the Buddha, who incorporate the qualities of the Arya Sangha, well-practiced in Sila, Samadhi and Panya, well-developed. In his own lifetime and since, has a, an amazing reputation, good reputation throughout Thailand, Sangha and laity, and nowadays you might say throughout the Buddhist world. And one of the things he's well known for is his not only his ability to train monks and laity, but also to teach monks how to be monks, how to be good monks. And in some of the aspects of the monk's life that you don't often hear about outside of monasteries. And this photograph embodies that. Lumpur Chara is known as one who encouraged and valued respect between samanas, between monks, even very senior monks, even though he was a teacher with hundreds of disciples, many branch monasteries. When Lumpur Dun came, Lumpur Chara gracefully and sincerely bowed to him. And there's other teachers who visited Lumpur Char or Lumpur Char visited other teachers. He was always known as one who showed true respect for other monks, both junior monks, senior monks, forest monks, or meditation monks and city scholar monks, didn't matter. So he was one who in turn received much respect from others. That's what he encouraged himself. <coughs> Even a simple act as a bow can incorporate a lot of very profound Dhamma. And we talk about the path of practice for ending suffering. And we read the suttas and hear the teachings. And we can learn Pali in the technical terms, in the suttas, the Vinaya, the suttas, the Abhinama. There's much we can learn, much we can remember. But also in a simple, the simple action of bowing 
also much profound Dhamma is stored. When you bow from one monk bowing to another monk, you're not bowing on the basis of personality or preference or who that person is you're bowing to. You're just doing it because it's the correct behavior, the correct action from the Vinaya training. And if you bow mindfully and with a wholesome intention, it just leads on to more, the arising of more skillful, wholesome intentions when you bow. So encouraged us to use a simple act like bowing as a form of training the mind in wholesome dhammas, to bring up wholesome dhammas, to bring up mindfulness, to bring up respect, to bring up harmony between bhikkhus, or whether you're bowing on your own in your kuti before you leave. He encouraged us to bow before we leave our kuti, when we return to our kuti, bow three times. So even on your own, we're still using it as a simple but very direct way of establishing the mind in wholesome dhammas. Physically, we slow down to bow. We lower ourselves, so it has a psychological effect of taking some of the sting out of some of our more unwholesome states of mind that we can fall into. And you see, monks who are trained, they're no longer caught into judging the person they bow to. They're bowing to the robe which represents Buddha Dhamma Sangha. They're not bowing so much to the personality of the person, whether they like them or not. And if you bow many times a day, that's many occasions when you become mindful. So it's something Lumpur is famous for, both teaching others and for practicing it himself. Lumpur Dun, also a famous teacher, now some of his teachings are translated into English. So he's famous for his often very simple answers and direct answers to Dhamma questions, different issues people brought him. He often gave very short, to the point answers. And he has his famous description of the Four Noble Truths in terms of meditation. The mind that goes out from itself is samudaya, the cause of suffering. The result of the mind going out from itself is dukkha. The mind watching and guarding over itself is magga. And the result of the mind watching over itself is niroda, realization or liberation the end of suffering. A very succinct summary of the Four Noble Truths in practice. 
And this is our, the quality of our, <clears throat> or the flavour of our life as monks is we're developing this quality of the mind watching over itself. So many of the ways of training and practices that Lumpur Char encouraged are to bring up and support that. So just bowing, you're bringing your mind to the present moment with the body in the present moment. And this is the path, the mind watching over the mind as you bow, or showing respect, or chanting, cleaning a building, sweeping leaves, going bindabata, washing your bowl, looking after your bowl, and so on. All the different activities we're doing, and the Vinaya rules and training that we follow, are all supportive of the arising of the Four Noble Truths in this, this very heart, this very mind. Rumpocha emphasized the importance of the Brahma Viharas in practice, you're living as a community, whether it's just a few monks or many monks. You use the Brahma Viharas as a foundation for your practice, and that's what the Vinaya and the monastic training is encouraging. We learn to transcend our preferences for other members of the community and I like this one, I don't like that one. That's the way of maybe the lay world, the lay life. As monks we go beyond that, so we develop compassion for all members of the community. We show respect for each other and we support each other. So when we're sick or in need of help, we can support each other. When we share out the requisites and we respect each other's property and the way we speak, the way we relate to each other, all embodies the, the Brahma Vihara Dhammas, kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. We develop the Brahma Viharas to ourselves also. We don't forget ourselves as one practitioner. And you could say the whole practice is the practice of developing kindness and compassion to oneself as a human being, because we're doing the right thing or correct thing for a human being to do to free themselves from suffering. But then we also show that in our behavior towards others. We don't consciously or deliberately do things to make others suffer, the other people around us or even animals. We do consciously and deliberately do things and say things to reduce other people's suffering according to our ability and according to the situation. And this is the Brahma Viharas. It leads to harmony between bhikkhus when there's a sense of mutual respect, care, and attention. With the practice of mindfulness, you learn to pay attention to what you're doing, what you're saying, 
and obviously what you're thinking and what's going on mentally. A lot of our life is <clears throat> based around mental training as well. We're often on our own at our kuti or just doing some activity on our own, not talking or involved with anyone. But we're paying attention to our mind as we're doing that. And obviously when we're with others, we're paying attention to how we relate, using the rules of training, the practices, and just basic mindfulness and wisdom to guide ourselves. You know, practice of mindfulness as a bhikkhu is not simply coming to the present moment with the breath alone, but maybe also mindfully remembering that you are a monk and what's appropriate for a monk to do or say in a certain, certain situation. We use mindfulness and clear comprehension and wisdom to remember who we are, where we are, be mindful of the situation, what's required, remind ourselves of short-term goals, like our meditation object, being mindful of that, be mindful of our rules, and the long-term goals, mindful of Nibbāna and our aim to realize Nibbāna. So we're learning to pay attention to this body and mind in the present moment. And this is as Lumpodun said, this is the mind watching over the mind, but also watching the body as well, because that's where you see the mind a lot of the time, is how it's relating to our own body and the body functions and it does things according to what the mind tells it. Where we go, what we do. And you see, even just bowing, how often we aren't even quite aware how many times we bowed. Was it two or three? Easy and just one set of three bows or three prostrations to forget. Or even bowing the way we bow. Ajahn Chah used to teach this a lot. You know, we do what we call the Bencha Pradit, it's a five point prostration. Where you have your elbows, your palms, and your forehead on the ground when you bow. You bow slowly, gracefully, with a straight back. And that's the aim, according to age and physical ability. You know, when we're not very mindful, we do all kinds of versions. And the famous one is the lay person who comes in, doesn't even raise their back. They just move their hands, their palms a little bit, three times. The monks can do different versions. So even bowing, it's a practice of mind training, paying attention to where the mind is, what the body is doing. And this same way of training goes to everything. How you wash your bowl, whether you clatter around, damage it, or if you're upatarking another monk, how do you wash his bowl? Do you look after it as well as yours? Better than yours? Worse than yours? If different moods overcome the mind, does it affect your behavior? When you're in a bad mood, does it affect the way you look after your requisites or the way you look after other, 
other monks' requisites, let alone what we say and what we think, or just physically, how does your mood affect you? Or maybe we're, when we're excited, enthusiastic or excited, stimulated by some conversation or some event, that also can lead to different behavior. Unmindful, you might say, unmindful behavior. So we learn a lot. A lot of our life is repetitious. And that can become a cause for boredom to arise or dissatisfaction. But at the same time, it's also a useful way to become aware of your own mind. If you're doing similar tasks on a regular basis, you can see how your mind state affects what you're doing. Boredom often comes because of frustration. As we come into the robes, we limit our sense stimulation. We don't have a lot of entertainment or distraction. We have to give up certain comforts and freedoms of the sensual type. That frustration can often lead to a boredom. But then the way to deal with boredom, like any other state of mind based in craving and moods, is to establish mindfulness, pay attention to it. And you'll see boredom, what is it? It's a feeling that arises and ceases. You might have a feeling of discontent, boredom, leads to restlessness, inability to concentrate. But if you make the effort to bring up mindfulness, you can start seeing the boredom just as a mood rather than indulging it or getting caught up in it. You can even make it into a game. You say, how long is this feeling of boredom going to last? And you watch it. And you prove to yourself that it is just a mental state, one kind of feeling that comes and goes. They say the best way to deal with boredom is curiosity. So you actually turn your boredom into something to learn from by establishing mindfulness, paying attention to it. You can ask yourself questions. When you feel bored, what actually are the characteristics of boredom? <clears throat> is there a physical feeling associated with it? Is there a mental feeling? The mental feelings we call domanasas, unwholesome, unpleasant mental feeling. Somanasa, a pleasant mental feeling. Sukha and dukkha, physical feelings of pleasure and pain. Is there anything you can learn when you're feeling bored? What can you learn from it? What triggers it? Is it triggered by a negative perception that we've already accumulated? So it's also a, a view, an opinion that we keep reinforcing. If you're bored with a routine or a place or a certain aspect of your daily life, if it's repetitive, or is there a negative perception that you keep clinging to and that triggers more negative thinking and feelings of boredom. You know, if you say, oh, this is boring, you say it enough times or you believe that thought, 
and then it becomes a view. I don't like that place, it's boring. I don't like that activity, it's boring. But that's not coming from mindfulness or wisdom. It's just a view and a perception you've held on to. If you start showing your curiosity and investigating more and try and pay attention more, well, you can learn from that. You can free yourself from the, the negative perception, perhaps, by becoming more interested in even boredom itself. But that takes effort. So another antidote to boredom is effort. You know, the effort to establish mindfulness and pay attention. The effort to investigate, ask questions, learn from your experience. The effort to get up and do that. So if you, you know, boredom sets in when we often just want to sleep, to escape from our mood. But before you do that, you investigate what's going on. Pay attention rather than just indulging. You learn from one mood, whether it's boredom or aversion or desire, different forms of sensual desire. You learn from one, learn to investigate, establish mindfulness, pay attention, investigate. Then you can apply the same wisdom you're gaining to other similar mental states, because they're all the same in the end. They're mental states that arise and cease. There's different feelings that arise and cease, there's thought patterns, habits of thinking, there's perceptions. But they're all arising and ceasing. And what arises and ceases is not much, there's not much in there you can take as a self. It's not substantial. So it's this underlying mindfulness and wisdom that you're training in that can look back at the mind itself, or as Lumpur Duna said, the mind watching the mind. Making these mental states and feelings as objects of mindfulness rather than just following them along. And as that skill develops, it even becomes interesting again. It's a challenge, a useful challenge and even boredom can become interesting because it's a challenge to become mindful and pay attention to the boredom. But once you've understood something once and let go of your attachment, then the challenge and the interest comes because you see you can do it again. Can you do it again? Can you apply the same wisdom again? Can you free your mind from that mood or that mental state again? Lumpur Chao used to talk about how it's a bit like when you make a fire, and you might give a modern comparison, it's like our wood fires, wood burning stoves that we use at this time of year. You know, what, how does it work? You put fire, uh, wood in, you light the paper and kindling, and you get a draft pulling the heat up the chimney and that means the fire starts to 
glow and grow, it's got oxygen and it's a self-sustaining process, you keep burning, the draft keeps going up the chimney, the whole fire keeps going. It's quite useful, otherwise you'd get smoke in your room. You don't, you always, all the smoke is drawn up the chimney. And Umbucha used to say, if you keep putting the effort in to establish mindfulness and pay attention to what's going on in your mind, in any posture, in any activity, not just when you're meditating, then there's this sense of it draws every object in to the contemplation of the three characteristics just like the smoke is and the heat is drawn up the chimney. You keep putting effort into establishing mindfulness and then you keep noticing, if you keep paying attention, you'll notice the way things are, that they're not permanent. Mental states are transient. What's not permanent is not you. It's not a person, a being, a self. It's just a feeling, it's just a thought. And that's where you gain liberation. You're liberating yourself from your attachment, <clears throat> negative perceptions, negative views that you've been holding on to. You don't have to follow those negative perceptions and mental states so you don't have to speak or act on them. You just watch them and use mindfulness, paying attention to what's going on, and then you can actually let go. The letting go and the contemplation is like all the smoke being drawn up the chimney. It doesn't bother anyone. It gets out of there and the timber, the fuel is burnt, burnt up. The fuel is the mental state or the feeling. So then you can see, if you keep putting effort into establishing mindfulness, these kind of insights and understanding grows and it can come at any time, not just when you're sitting or walking. Often sitting is quite difficult because we often feel tired, the breath is subtle. So sometimes we gain insight when we're not sitting. Maybe when we're walking meditation, if we put effort into that, or doing chores, or just walking through the forest, but we pay attention to what's going on, the three characteristics become clear to the mind. It can be in any situation. Just paying attention to eating your meal rather than following along with the thought processes and the reactions to the food or the situation. You watch and apply the, the reflection in the three characteristics at that time. Or as I said earlier, just bowing, bowing to the Buddha statue or bowing before you leave your kuti, brings your mind back to the present moment and you pay attention to the mood. Ajahn Chah used to say you can even become enlightened just sweeping leaves or doing some very ordinary chore if you look at an ordinary chore, we say ordinary chore, you know, on a worldly level it sounds boring, uninspiring. Mopping a floor, sweeping, cleaning up. 
If you get caught into your old perceptions, then it's seen as just some mundane task. Trying to do, do it and you're thinking, well, I'm just doing it for other people, they don't help or they don't deserve this or why do I have to do this? You know, the old negative kind of thinking. Well, of course, there's no insight. If you start paying attention to your mental states as you're doing that ordinary chore and letting them go, not following them and just paying attention to them and seeing them as impermanent, as a not-self, or even a very mundane chore can become the basis for liberation, insight. Pity and sukha can arise just as when you're sitting or walking meditation. Wholesome states of mind can arise, wholesome reflections. One thing leads to another. You put effort into establishing mindfulness, you put effort into contemplating, investigating the Dhamma. We feel better physically, mentally, a sense of well-being, the pity and sukha arises. And that only feeds back into being willing to put up with more mental states or feelings and being able to contemplate them rather than just succumb to them. What you find is over time, if you start treating every part of the practice as important, the sila, the samadhi, the panya, the different activities, the different postures, everything becomes part of the practice. What you see is even though your mind obviously goes up and down, some periods you have more clarity and mindfulness and you're reflecting Dhamma. Other periods the mind seems to slip, the mindfulness slips, moods come in, we get more dis disappointed or depressed because of the negative states. You still have this up and down movement of the mind, but over time you might say your baseline or your starting point of your mind starts to shift in an upward direction because of the practice. This is wisdom, the effect of wisdom, which is ultimately what frees the mind from the causes of suffering, the wisdom and insight. You know, sila provides a foundation, samadhi provides the calm, but samadhi itself isn't enough. Wisdom is what sticks and starts to pull out, uproot the, the different attachments and defilements and the wrong thinking by establishing insight. But you find that this wisdom, what it does, it affects your mind. So it's gradually raising up the base level of your mind. So even though we have periods of up and down, our practice might not be even yet, our mood and our experience of happiness and suffering, peace and lack of peace, that might be rather inconsistent. But when the mind falls, it doesn't fall as far as it used to because there's wisdom there now. If you can see any results over the practice, over weeks, months, years of practice, you find that wisdom is slowly, or sometimes very fast, but at least slowly, gradually coming into the mind. So even though you have ups and downs of your effort and different mental states catching you out, over time you find your mind doesn't fall so far. The negative states are not quite so deep and negative and dark. 
the despair or the lack of inspiration is not quite so profound or overwhelming. The lust, the attachment, the anger is not quite so extreme as before. All of this is because of the presence of wisdom. So the human mind, you can see, is gradually improving its level, you might say. Or another way of looking at it is the qualities of a samana are being established in the mind, in the heart. So even though with different situations and different karma that comes along, we might still fall into different moods, greed, anger, lust, delusion, boredom, fear, worry. But they don't overwhelm the mind quite as much as before. They don't affect our outward behavior as much as before. They don't affect our mental behavior as much as before. And the qualities of the samana are starting to be established. Or another way they talk about it is barami. Barami means those spiritual qualities which don't just disappear you know, under stress, under provocation, under different karmic situations we find ourselves in. The barami are those qualities which persist. That's why they say barami. No barami means you know, completely disappears. In the face of provocation, you get completely angry and completely lose your head and can't keep the precepts, say. In the face of lustful temptation, you can't remain restrained and you indulge your lust and so on. That's when bar there's no barami there. But barami is what keeps you going even under more extreme temptation, provocation, despair, sickness, old age, whatever the particular challenge in your practice, there's some barami there. And these barami gradually grow as you keep practicing, and particularly panya barami, wisdom, means that even if your mind is not peaceful yet and different situations can be challenging, but there's some understanding there of what you have to do to practice with different mental states that arise, however unwholesome they may seem, there's also still some wisdom that you can draw on and say, oh, this is something that is anicca, dukkha, anatta. There's still enough clarity to reflect back on the path of practice and what to do. There's a knowledge what I should do to keep the precepts, establish mindfulness, pay attention and reflect on this feeling and this situation, this mental state. And Lumpur Cha said, if you've established that, you might call that right view, samaditi, where you have enough wisdom in your mind to reflect on everything that's arising, even if it's very strong emotional mental states or very deeply ingrained negative habits of mind or whatever. If you have the right view established, you can deal with it all and you have a sense, I can cope with anything. So you gain some courage and confidence from that. And this is not foolish courage of a person who just does things without thinking of the consequences. This is courage based on understanding of what is what. Even though one knows one still has some greed, anger, delusion in the mind, one also has enough wisdom to know that these things are impermanent, 
suffering, not self. So the part of the mind doesn't want to grasp onto them anymore. Maybe it gives you the patience, the kantibarami, to ride out different emotional states until you see for yourself when they're just impermanent and they go, disappear. If something disappears before your very mind, if you are paying attention at the moment it disappears, then you can have no doubt it's impermanent, it's not self. So not only do you gain courage and energy, but you also lose doubt, go beyond doubt, uncertainty about the practice. Because you start to realize any phenomena, mental phenomena, physical phenomena, they have this same pattern. They arise, they cease, they're impermanent. What's impermanent is not self. Physical phenomena, four elements. Mental phenomena, also elements, mental elements but they're not self. So all of the kind of trainings and teachings that Lumpur Cha left us are supporting that, encouraging us to be patient, develop the Brahma-viharas and then bringing up mindfulness, learning to pay attention to what's going on mentally, what's going on around us with other people, what we're doing. As you do that, little by little, your wisdom and understanding comes up and that's what supports the mind. And that's what elevates the human mind ultimately to transcend suffering. First, maybe just to transcend suffering temporarily, ultimately to completely transcend suffering. But the mind is being elevated by the presence of wisdom. So it goes beyond the normal attachments and delusions and mental suffering that we experience as human beings. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight and we can do some chanting and carry on practicing. And we'll do some more chanting again at midnight.